0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Round the Campfire. This is your host, John Green, here with Ty, the co-host. Say hello, Ty. Hey, everybody. And we have a special guest today that I have been excited to have on uh, for the longest time, my good buddy, Hugh. And Hugh, say hello, I guess. Hey, everybody. (laughs) So when I first met Hugh, and this is one of my favorite stories, is he was coming to sit in front of me in law school, and he opens up his briefcase, and I see, like, first off, a scapular poking out the back the back of his shirt. And he opens his briefcase, and there's a beginner's guide to Latin inside it, and also a Lord of the Rings book. I forget which one, but, yeah, with the Latin, the Lord of the Rings book, and the scapular, I immediately knew Hugh and I are going to be buddies. And
1: here we are, Hugh.
0: Good times, good times.
2: That is just an incredible story, John. Thank you, Ty.
0: I appreciate that, <laughs> um, Hugh. First and foremost, how is being a father?
1: Uh, it's it's amazing. Highly recommended. Definitely uh, go get yourself a wife and a kid if you don't have one. <laughs> um, yeah. How, how old is uh, he now? Hugh Patrick is just over five months old, and um, he's just a world of fun. Uh, he's honestly very easy. Um, Beautiful baby smiles and laughs all the
0: time. He's a cute kid, man.
1: And uh, I'm definitely enjoying paternity leave. So, oh, nice, you can't beat that.
0: Uh, do you feel like your perspective on stuff kind of changes once you be like once you have a kid? Like, did it and did it change during the pregnancy, like, and then up to the point of having a kid, or was it like the second you're holding your own child, it's like, oh my gosh.
1: This is for real, yeah. Um, I mean, there's definitely that sense of anticipation, you know, during the pregnancy. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'd say there's been uh, a big, you know, uh, perspective shift. Maybe not a um, perspective shift, but definitely, um, you know, your your world looks different when you've got a little person, your little person, that you're you know responsible for. And um, I definitely think you see uh, the world and society and all that sort of stuff very differently than, in, in, you know, a lot of real ways because it's not just how do I interact as an individual, but how do I, you know, interact as you know a member of a family, as a leader of a family, you know, with someone that you're responsible for raising and cultivating and turning into, you know, a uh, you know, good little human, you know, a good Christian, um, all that sort of stuff.
0: So absolutely. It's a lot of responsibility, man, but I'm sure it's exciting and definitely fulfilling. Oh, very much so, yeah. Good. Um, so, Ty, in kind of the, maybe some some people who were listening got what I was alluding to when I was talking about Beginner's Guide to Latin and a scapular poking out the back of your shirt. Um, but, so, what we thought would be an interesting conversation to have around the bonfire here is if Ty, who was raised, what, non-denominational, Ty, is that?
2: It was essentially... A Baptist in name church,
0: so non-denominational Protestant, essentially. Gotcha. And he had some pretty, like, I guess, basic fundamental questions about what the Catholic Church is. And yeah. I would, that was kind of, or go ahead, Ty. <laughs>
2: well, the funny part is, um, so I've been to Israel. I've done tons of research on the Bible, Christianity. Read the Bible front to back. I was baptized in the Jordan River. So, of like from just like a checking a box perspective, I've done the Christian thing. And so, was even with your all first of
1: that, baptism? huh? Was that your first baptism? It was. Oh, yeah.
2: Um, but with all of going down the Christian path, just kind of like looking slightly to like the left or right, or just to the side of Catholicism, which is, for... Lack of a better term, essentially, we're like the same thing. Um, I know nothing about Catholicism. Like so, Hugh, when we were driving over here, I was like, John, uh, do you have to be baptized to be saved? And he kind of like sat there for a second. And I was like, Okay, we'll wait to answer this one.
1: <laughs> um, then, a couple minor minor exceptions, yes. Really. Cause in yeah. so
2: can I just inter just use the word Christianity interchangeably with Protestant?
1: Uh um I mean Man. not really and I'll disagree with you, but
2: <laughs> I, it's just it's just because of the habit. Oh I know it's gonna slip. So for what I believe as a Protestant is you don't. It's merely a confession of faith.
1: But what do what what Catholics believe? wait, what faith? Faith in Jesus Christ. One and only Savior. Okay, I mean, Arians believed in Jesus Christ. Do you know who the Arians are? The Arians? No. Yeah. It was one of the first big um, heretical movements in the church. They denied the divinity of Christ, you know. But they, they, um, you know, they they believed in him. They believed that he was sent by God, you know, to redeem mankind. They just didn't believe he was God. Do
0: Arians go to heaven?
2: So they don't believe
1: he's God.
0: No, no, they deny his divinity. Say so pretty much, think so, he's just a really nice guy. No, they
1: don't. yeah. I mean, when when we say like, uh, I mean, this uh, we'll we'll get into this, but uh, when you know, um, when we talk about uh, I, I believe in the confession of faith, I mean, the first big question for Protestants is what faith. I mean, Protestants have not been able to hammer out the essentials of Christianity like from the beginning. Um, you know, Luther and Zwingli, and, uh, who else? Um, Luther and Zwingli got together uh, to to try to, you know, um, patch together their burgeoning movement of, you know, breaking from the, the Roman church. Um, and they couldn't agree on anything. And famously, Luther flipped over the table and like carved on it. Uh, the Eucharist was the specific, you know, um, uh, point of disagreement in that particular conference, carved on it with a knife, this is my body. Um, so, you know, do you have to believe that uh, you know uh, at the words of consecration the you know body the, the the bread and wine become the body and blood of our lord that seems to me like it'd be pretty essential if it's true like you know if it's actually the case that bread and wine turn into the flesh and blood of jesus christ you know sacrifice for us it seems like you know that's pretty important especially because he's you know he says if uh, if you don't consume this you have no life in you um but is you know zwingli said that that wasn't important at all Uh, he was the first person pretty much in christian history to say that but he said it um so you know zwinglians say you don't need to believe in that that that's not part of the confession of faith lutherans say that you do and in fact if you deny it you're damned to hell
2: see this is the stuff that like as a protestant we don't really sorry john i just squeaked the chair again um as a protestant we don't really at least i don't personally get so deep into these specific things like i was john weren't we talking a little while back where you were talking about communion and how you said it literally transforms into the blood of christ and flesh the blood That's... body
0: soul and divinity yeah well it takes totally on the
2: foreign the to protestants totally foreign idea had no idea it existed not true I mean I, I could respectfully um well the word the last,
1: the word literally. when you're talking about Baptists like American Baptists, it's very foreign, yes, but the american you know the American Protestants that first came here, they would not have been foreign to them, I mean, they wouldn't obviously have used the same language or believed the same things as Roman Catholics, but they were wrestling with those questions in a very serious way, you know, when we were talking about the Puritans and you know um it, most Protestants historically have believed. That in some way you, the Eucharist is essential to salvation, and that um, the the body and blood are there in some way. Now, if you're talking about the actual substance transmuting, you know transubstantiation, the way that Catholics talk about it, uh, most Catholic, or most most Protestants would would dissent from that, and that's one of the big reasons why they're Protestants. Um, but yeah, most ever a large amount of protestants have held to things like consubstantiation which is that like the the body and blood are actually there but the bread and wine are also there too or um you know that uh spiritually this is what like the calvinist i think said spiritually the body and blood are there but it's not uh, an actual change in substance but there is a real presence there when there was not one before, you know, some form of institution. So, I mean, yeah, if you're talking about like modern American Protestants, I'd agree with you. But modern American Protestants would be called heretics by just about every like prior generation of Protestants. If you go back to like the 1800s, you know, in 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 earlier.
0: It, that's what's so interesting to me about the, I guess, the whole debate about the Eucharist, especially in the United States, is that really wasn't a debate until extremely you know, this recently. This a Protestant
1: country, and the Protestants are willing to put a lot aside as long as they're not Catholic. Like You can basically believe whatever you want. I mean, there you could say may, there's maybe one or two things that will definitely get you kicked out of Protestantism. Like If you start denying Jesus Christ as the Son of God, um, you, maybe that'll get you booted. But then again, John Adams, most Americans will claim him as a Protestant, and he was a Unitarian, which means that he explicitly denied that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And he was an upstanding member of Protestant American society. He attended a Protestant American church, at least last I checked the Unitarians were like part of that, you know, faith tradition. Um, so, I mean, you know, maybe there's one or two things that these days will get you like, you know, kicked out of the tent. Um, but basically, you know, you, you can talk to snakes, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> and, um, you know, as long as you're not Catholic, but because Protestant doesn't really have any like affirmative content to it. Um, I mean, it's like lots of, Protestants affirm- affirmatively believe in a whole lot of things, but what Protestantism is, is a descent from something like that's what it is in its core. So it, it can't ever be a rallying cry for anything. It's just, you know, it, it's built into, it's baked into the cake that it fractures, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, eternally um, because it, it's a negation. It's not a affirmation.
0: That's an interesting point that I've never thought of before. Um so by going to to Ty, I kind of want to direct yeah, this question your yeah,
1: way. you were oh, mentioning sorry. faith and yeah, the ahead, yeah. faith. you know um it's the affirmation of faith that matters, not you know, all these all these other things like you know, Eucharist or what have
0: you. Um so speaking of the I guess the profession of faith, um Ty, maybe we should start with things that we absolutely agree on. Um so I kind of want to read the profession of faith and you tell me what you don't agree with. Sound good? All right. I believe in one God. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're doing good so far. The Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Okay. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Born of the Father before all ages. All right, I'm going to adjust my chair. All right. It yes, says, we can. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. Yep. All right. For us men, for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of Virgin Mary and became man. Yep. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and life of the world to come. Amen. So it's that last part. Can you repeat that again? I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come.
2: So what does that mean? I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins? So that kind of goes to
1: the— your sin, for one. That's a big point of disagreement between— uh, You know, modern Protestants and and Catholics, Uh, Catholics believe that baptism literally uh, remits all sins prior to baptism, you know, if if done with the right matter and form, you know, so. um,
2: Yeah, Protestants would say they're already forgiven.
1: Yeah. So do you agree with that statement or? Yeah. So, no, I don't agree with that statement. Okay.
0: And that there's so one
1: baptism. That's another big difference. Catholics believe that you can only be baptized once um, because, you know, it, it, for, for, a, for a whole host of reasons, but you can only be baptized once uh, and that any additional attempts at baptism are sacrilegious with minor exceptions, like, like a conditional baptism where it's unknown and there's no documentation whether a baptism took place. And so, you know, there's a, a conditional baptism to ensure that it has taken place.
0: So, Ty you're saying that you disagree with the confession or the baptism for giving sins, but what, what I guess is the purpose of getting baptized? Like, a,
2: like I was, like I was telling him, um, it's, it's just a um, profession of faith amongst your peers in public. As, as, like, this is a statement of what I believe, hold me accountable.
1: So where does it say that in the Bible?
2: Honestly, I can't point you to it. That's why I'm having this conversation.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, this is, um, I I have a couple of Protestant friends that I'm, I'm always hammering on at this stuff. So by the way, um, if I am coming across as like aggressive, I apologize. <laughs> I don't mean to. Um, I, when I, you know, uh, when we start having these heady discussions, I tend to, you know, um, talk the way I do. Um, so, you know, pay no heed to that. But I've, I've got a Protestant friend, one in particular, um, that... Uh, we have these conversations fairly frequently or we did before I moved up to Wisconsin. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I have the impression that the, for a a Protestant evaluating Catholicism and its truth claims, like the, they come to it thinking the default is that Protestantism is true. And, um, you know, it's just self-explanatory that, you know, certain things are important. Certain things aren't that, you know, certain things are side matters like whether baptism saves or, you know, whether the bread and wine turn into the body of blood of Jesus Christ or whether the church is invisible or visible. Um, so uh, but they, they come with like essentially Catholicism needs to prove itself um, and Protestantism is default Christianity. Um, and I just think that's that's a very bad frame to come to this question with one historically. Protestantism has not been around that long, like, you know, 1500 and earlier. Um, I, I defy anyone to find me a single person that professed the major beliefs that Luther, let alone any of the other more radical reformers believed, um, you know, all the big ones. That I, was I one of my anyone. questions.
2: If we can go back to that, if you sure, want well, to later. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, um, well, I'll just ask it right now. You can answer it or just keep going. I was asking John, when was like the split? When was it like, oh, like 15, the Catholics 15, were like, was it like the Catholics were like, ah, oh, you you guys heretics Protestants get out of here? And they did their thing, or were the Protestants like, ah, oh, you guys are too strict, we're doing our own thing?
1: So I, I mean, when 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 a big doctrinal issue comes up in the church, um, speaking historically, the way that it's usually resolved, like at the utmost extremity. Um, when when things are very much out of hand, is an ecumenical council. So for this is just some context um, before I, I you know say what I'm going to say next. Uh, for instance, uh, the uh, profession of faith that John read is called the Nicene Creed, and it comes from the Council of Nicaea in the 300s, um, and that was actually responding to Arianism, which I uh, you know mentioned earlier. Basically, uh, Arians were followers of this man named Arius, who is a bishop in the East. And Arius, uh, his big, uh, uh, stomping block was that Jesus Christ was not the son of God. That was his, uh, um, his big thing. And he got a lot of followers and it split the church down the middle. Actually, um, it seemed like at, at some points, the majority of Christians denied the divinity of Christ. Um, that's not to say that was the apostolic teaching. It absolutely wasn't, you know, but for a time in the 300s, that was the case. So there was a big ecumenical council where all the bishops of the world got together. Um, not, not all the bishops of the world, but you know, a uh, a moral, a consensus of the bishops of the world got together at Nicaea and, um, uh, uh, declared Arianism anathema, um, and developed the creed that you just heard as a way of, you know, so it's like specifically, if you, if you were listening, it's specifically tailored against Arianism, you know, um, uh, the language about being begotten, not made. The language about being consubstantial with the Father. Um, you know, all all that sort of stuff. It's it's specifically anti aryan So, um, yeah, ecumenical councils are typically the way that uh, huge, huge divisions in the church are eventually resolved. And that doesn't mean they're resolved right away. The Aryan controversy continued for a long time after the Council of Nicaea, um, and there's still you know Arians running around 150, 200 years later, um, although mostly only German barbarians. But uh, so um, all that to say uh, that in 1517, Martin Luther uh, was a a monk, an Augustinian monk in Germany um, who uh, had problems with, you know, abuses around the sale of indulgences and other other issues. Um, Although I I think now we we actually so he, he posted. Theses to the door of the Wittenberg and the Cathedral. Theses are basically like subjects of disputation. So, like, um, you know, someone uh, a post postgraduate, you know, going for his doctor's degree would uh, develop theses and say, like, I'm going to argue this, that, and the other. Um, you know, be here on this date to watch me argue with the professors in Latin about whether this truth of the faith or you know yeah. that whatever. So, ninety five theses, um, and that kicked off a, a huge uh, split in the church because basically. Martin Luther said that, um, the popes have been wrong. The popes have erred, which is something that traditionally Christians did not believe East and West, even if the Easterners didn't give as much reverence to the Pope as Westerners did. Um, pre, you know, teaching that the, uh, Pope was positively erroneous was a new thing. And he also said that ecumenical councils had erred, Um, and, uh, basically that, um, Luther's interpretation of the Bible was right, and Luther's interpretation of the faith was right. Um, and uh, again, just keep in mind, you're getting this from a from a bias source, so you know, go go and read it yourself. But I do think everything that I'm saying is true. And you know, um, the thing that really made it big was that uh, German princes decided to side with Luther um, and use that as a way to elevate their secular power. Um, and so what was initially a theological dispute, quickly became a political dispute um, and uh, that that had huge rev- reverberations. But it didn't start stop with Luther. As soon as Luther said, like, essentially, I get to redraw the rules of Christianity, other people obviously started doing it too um, because, you know, you're just some, like, monk and that doesn't even mean anything anymore. You're just a monk from Germany. So if some monk from Germany can, you know, say that transubstantiation is wrong, well, then I can say that his idea of consubstantiation is wrong. So you start getting... Uh, it, reformers in, uh, Switzerland and in England and in the Netherlands and, um, all over, you know, uh, but it, it did tend to be a, uh, Northwestern European thing. Um, I mean, if, if you're talking about hotbeds of Protestantism, it, it's, uh, North Germany, especially Germany, but North Germany, especially, uh, Switzerland, England, the Netherlands, Scandinavia, um, Poland for a time, but the Jesuits wrapped that up, um, Bohemia for a time, but the Jesuits wrapped that up. Um, and yes, in France. Oh, yeah, John, we were talking, talking
2: about there. the Jesuits the other day.
1: Those <laughs> um, stinkers. Those stinkers. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty heterodox by and large today, but back in the day, I mean, you read about, I, I, defy you to go read about the life of Ignatius Loyola or Francis Xavier or, um, Peter Canisius and not come out of that, a Catholic. Um, they're, you know, they're incredible saintly men. Um so uh anyways, um Protestantism was a dispute over over that. So um it, it essentially and the thing that made the the big dispute was Martin Luther denying the uh, uh if you want to say it, like the infallibility of the Pope, the infallibility of ecumenical councils, authority in the churches it was understood up to that point. Um, you know, that was that was one of the big things. And then, you know, it, it it kept going from there. When you, when you take out, you know, the, the uh, authoritative institutions that undergird the church, like what you open the door to is anarchy and, you know, lots of personal opinion and that's what, what has happened ever since. Um, and, uh, yeah. So uh, he, uh, and that's,
2: you... Wait, that was one of mm-hmm. my first,
1: uh, reactions to, it was like a slight jab where
2: you're like, Protestants go from this to, Oh my gosh, we're talking to snakes. And I kind of laughed because it's, totally true it's a hundred percent true i was like there's no defense of that because i look at those people and i go they are so wrong um and it just it goes
1: to show that
2: like it is sort of a
1: wild west it it is, and it, it can't ever not be that because Protestant. So most people think that Protestantism means like the root of the word is protesting the Catholic Church, and effectively it does mean that. But like, what what it, it, it's actually the political thing. So when when you had these dissenters, um, uh, they were protesting the authority of the Pope you know, obviously that causes political divisions in the Holy Roman Empire, which is based, you know, like the, it, it's based on the Pope's ability to crown the emperor. So it's like, it's a big thing, you know? So anyways, uh, they cause problems with the empire in the internal political structures of the empire and the emperor took Charles V took moves to squelch that. Um, and the word Protestant, Protestant actually comes from the political movement against the emperor in Germany, um, so, uh, it, it breeds. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I'm not going to say that the, the Catholic model is perfect. You know, politically, like it's, there's certainly lots of you know, uh, there's thousands of years of history you know that show that you know there's. But but one problem that the Catholic Church doesn't have is like the tools to define what is the faith and what is not, and what is acceptable and what is not. Like I don't believe that our hierarchy today is doing enough charitable anathemas and excommunications and stuff like that but they have those tools, right? Like yep. if the Pope wanted to say those German bishops are totally out of line, excommunicated until you like, uh, 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 you know, make a profession of faith uh, to these dogmatic truths, right? Um, the Pope can totally do that. An ecumenical council can do that. In fact, you know, local bishops can, can do that. Um, in Protestantism, there's, there's just no means like that to hold everything together. Um, and, you know, every time someone's tried, it's just fallen apart miserably. I mean, that's the English civil war, you know, in a, in a nutshell.
0: Um, you used the word infallible a couple times. Can you explain what that means? Like, what does uh, it mean to say uh, that the Pope's don't infallible? Don't call
1: me to use like scholastic language or anything here, but, um, uh, basically, um, you know, Catholics believe that, uh, <coughs> certain organs of the church, can speak infallibly, which means that when they teach on uh, matters of faith and morals in a definitive way for the church as a whole, that the Holy Spirit protects them from error. So everybody's heard of, or, you know, almost everyone's heard of papal infallibility, which is one organ of the church, right? It's one way that, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, truths of faith and morals can be taught you know, to the, uh, the, 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 church as a whole, but that, that's not the only thing, you know, um, ecumenical councils, um, the, uh, consensus of the, of the fathers, I think is one, the consensus of all the bishops, you know, in, in the world is, is another, uh, but there's, so again, don't expect like, you know, scholastic definitions or anything here, but essentially, uh, infallibility means without error. And it, we, we believe that, you know, when certain organs of the church teach in certain ways that the Holy spirit protects them, from error because the Holy Spirit will not allow the church to lead people to hell. Like that's what it comes down to. Christ said he would be with this church, our church, the one church until the end of the age. Um, and we believe that. And that means that he's not going to let the church lead us to hell.
0: And do you think that's ever been like abused? Cause I guess teaching. Yeah. When, when, uh, do you think there's ever been an instance where the Pope speaks, um, ex cathedra and it's been an error?
1: No. Um, I mean, so like there is this back and forth between, um, so, I mean, let's take Vatican one. Vatican one is where papal infallibility. I was really hoping
0: you're going to go to Vatican two. Oh
1: my gosh. We're nerding out Uh, on Catholicism. uh, Um, so uh, Vatican one was in the 19th century and it taught that, uh, you know, the big thing that it's famous for is the teaching on papal infallibility. Which defined that the Pope has the power to teach infallibly, um, and uh, that uh, uh, gave the conditions for like when that happens. Um, but that wasn't all that it was really supposed to do. Um, in the middle of Vatican I, there was this like little thing where the Italian nationalists conquered the Papal States, and uh, you know right up to the gates of like St. Peter's Basilica, um, and that was unexpected for everyone involved. Um, so. Uh, it meant to also give teachings on, you know, infallibility with regards to bishops and with regards to councils and things like that. But that never happened because the council was cut short. Um, So uh, I I would say that maybe there was like a lack of balance. that was allowed there because you got this very heavy, very strong, um, you know, statement about one aspect of the magisterium, which is the teaching authority of the church without any statements really about other, uh, you know, aspects of the magisterium. Um, and I think Vatican II was trying to address that. Uh, so, um, uh, but yeah, I wouldn't say it's been abused. I mean, I, the, the more the, the, to the, to to be to be clear, happen,
0: I, that, I don't think so either, but I just wanted to, I guess, put the, put that point out there that in the 2000 year history, it's never been abused. Which I I I think is astounding because if I was a corrupt Pope, I would definitely abuse that.
1: When, I mean, even when we're talking about non-infallible stuff, you know, Pope's misbehaving. Um, when you look at the history of the institution as a whole, like it's, you know, pretty remarkable. (laughs) It's it's pretty remarkable doctrinally, like how few things that there are to go to as, you know, like, uh, like they'll talk about Pope Julius or they'll talk about, um, Pope Honorius, you know, and they'll, they'll, you know, there, there'll be uh, a couple of like go-to things where this Pope or that Pope, you know, seem to not be hard enough on heresy or, um, you know, seem to have privately believe something that was, uh, you know, against the faith or what have you. But like, there's nothing that, I mean, at least as far as I've seen and I'm aware that even comes close to, you know, and in then in, com, comes close to, you know. Disputing papal infallibility, and I think that's pretty amazing that there's so little material to fight about. And there is material, and you know we fight with the Protestants and the Orthodox about it, but there's so little material. I mean, it's two thousand years of, uh, yeah. you know, Pope's making statements and stuff. So,
0: you know what I think is interesting is like when I don't think any organization, like you, I can't name one because none exist, that has existed for two thousand years. I think Especially the a worldwide organization. monarchy has, but I think that maybe And probably the Egyptians, now that I think about it too. I, mean, I, guess in, I, don't any, I don't think there's any stable institution.
1: Like the right. e- Egyptians as a people, maybe like cops as a people, but um if if we're talking about like ethnic groups, then you know. Uh but yeah, the, the the Japanese monarchy has existed for I mean le legendarily, right? Like we don't actually um the legends take it back to that time. Um but th- there's that, and there may be one or two other things, but there's there's very few things that have the staying power of the papacy and, and obviously the universal church, right? So
0: Yeah, um, and I think that – well, I mean, I guess my point was it's been so poorly managed and there's been a lot of just terrible popes that it's a miracle in and of itself that the church is still around. That
1: Hilaire Belloc quote where, uh, you know, um, I believe in the uh, – you know, indefectibility of the church or something like that. But for, you know, uh, any, anyone who's, you know, not a Catholic, uh, you know, it, it's something like any institution run with such knavish imbecility wouldn't last a fortnight. Um, <laughs> and, uh, when Napoleon, Napoleon, one of the French bishops or maybe Napoleon had a discussion with one bishop, um, after, you know, working on the concordat with the Pope and he was just so mad. And he was like, I'm going to destroy this institution. I'm going to destroy the church. And the uh, bishop is like, uh, Your Majesty, the bishops have been trying for 1800 years and we've not been successful. What makes you think you'll be?
2: Yeah, that sounds about right. Hey, so, okay. So, what's the difference between Catholicism and Roman Catholicism? Because I've known people that are like, I'm Roman Catholic. Propaganda. I have no idea what that means.
1: Protestant propaganda. So, first of all, propaganda. Is pro- the word "propaganda" is Protestant propaganda? Do you know where that word comes from? No. Okay, so if you were interested in Catholicism and in the 1500s, and uh, you wanted, you know, materials to instruct you in the faith, um, there was a congregation uh, in the Vatican for producing materials for you to consume if you were interested in becoming a Catholic, and that was called the Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith, Congregatio Propaganda Fidei, something like that. Um, and the English, uh, just started calling that stuff propaganda with the idea that it warps your mind, right? That it brainwashes you, but that the, the use of that word in that instance is propaganda. Which is just, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Oh no, I definitely get what you're saying. Yeah. So Roman Catholic versus Catholic. Yeah, I've Um, had
2: people say I'm Roman Catholic, and I've had people say I'm
1: Catholic. So So Catholic just means universal. Like that's the meaning of the word when they say uh, "one holy Catholic and Apostolic." What they're saying is the Church is one, holy, universal, and Apostolic. Like that's what they mean when they when they say that in the Creed. Um, So Catholic just means universal, and that's what Christians like. You know, that's when. When, when there are disputes like, you know, big heresies in the church, often it comes down to the followers of a certain sect and the Catholics, right? So the Arians and the Catholics, the, you know, uh, the Lutherans and the Catholics. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, um, there's a lot of weight to just being able to use the term Catholic and sustain it. You know, like uh, if you can say that you're the Catholic and the other guy follows a certain individual, that guy sounds like the worst, the, the, the less true Christian just for the fact of it, right? So, if someone's a, a Calvinist or a Lutheran or a Zwinglian, and you're like, "Well, I'm a Catholic," it's you know, you're just using the word is sort of winning the argument, um, and they they hate that. So, uh, the English started calling Catholics Roman Catholics as a way of distinguishing that <laughs> they are loyal to the Pope. Like those people, I mean, normally they would just call them Papists, but if they were trying to be a little more diplomatic, they would call them. Roman Catholics, so I think that's the etymology of like where that comes from, um, but Catholics who you know cherished their loyalty to the Pope just took it and owned it. so you know uh, they're like, yeah, I'm a Roman Catholic, yeah, I'm loyal to the Pope, um, especially after the Tridentine reforms in the 1500s where you know like loyalty to the Pope was very much like the measure of Catholicism in a lot of ways. so uh, also I've heard Easterners just so in the Catholic Church. There are twenty-three, I think, twenty-three Eastern churches um, that have their own rites that go back thousands of years, and all this other stuff. And they, you know, the Greek churches and Syriac churches and Coptic churches and you know Persian churches. Um, so those ones will often call Latin Catholics, which is every Catholic you meet on the street, Roman Catholics, to say that those are the you know those are the Romans, those are the Westerners, those are the Latins. Um, and we are Byzantine Catholics or we are Syriac Catholics or we are, you know, um, uh, uh, Assyrian Catholics or we're Coptic Catholics. So that that's like a, another use of the term that I've heard, which is Easterners that aren't trying to be schismatic or anything, just delineating that there's a certain subset of Catholics, which is the majority, but it's still just a subset of Catholics that are Roman Catholics because they're Westerners, not Easterners.
2: So can you tell me I know nothing about mass and John and I were sort of like kind of talking about latin mass as opposed to what other mass I'm not sure can you explain like the differences like which one you so, subscribe to if,
1: Well if we're just talking um generally I mean liturgy might be a better word like um uh Liturgy, like divine liturgy is where the, you know, the sacrifice of Calvary happens. Basically, you know, all Catholics believe that at the divine liturgy, um, you know, the Christ sacrifice on the cross is represented to us, not not represented, represented. So, you know, you're at the foot of the altar, you're entering into a timeless, you know, place where you are at the foot of Calvary again. Um, so or you're at the foot of Calvary, like not again, you're just, you know, you're entering into this timeless place, um, in that, uh, like the, the body and blood, like it's, it's not like Christ isn't being sacrificed again for you. You are entering into that one and eternal sacrifice, you know, in, in your little piece of time in history, like Christ has made this eternal sacrifice and he's giving given us this means to access it, to access it. So there are lots of liturgies. Um, the mass is one liturgy, so uh the the mass is the western it 's the you know western Latin liturgy and it 's called that because at the end the priest turns to the people and says it misa est which um it it sort of translates to something like it is finished or you know like uh something something like that but it you know it's a it 's a very uh like strange turn of phrase in latin and um uh, anyways uh the like that word misa is like stuck with the Western divine liturgies, so that it's become called the Mass. Um so uh there are all sorts of divine liturgies. Like I said, there are, you know, like twenty-three churches other than the 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 Western, the Latin, the Roman Catholic Church, um that are in communion with the Pope and with, you know, uh like all Catholics throughout the world. Um and they all have their own liturgies, and so they're and, and they're all very old. Like they all go back to the apostles. You know, if they don't go back to the the apostles, like they're not like legitimate. Um, so, uh, you know, there's there's Greek liturgies and there's Syriac liturgies and there's Coptic, you know, Egyptian liturgies. I actually read somewhere. I don't know. You know, I don't know anything about this. So, um, um, so I don't know any any like anything about the veracity of this. But uh, I'd read that the the only way that ancient Egyptian is still used today is as a liturgical language in the Coptic church. Really? So, kind of uh, cool. Like ancient Egyptian, like the what the Pharaoh spoke is still being, you know, used, but only as a liturgical language for the cops. Um, so anyways, new mass versus old mass in the Western church, in the, you know, in the Latin church, um, uh, there was one liturgy um, that, you know, with amendments was, you know, celebrated. Uh, I, I mean, I, I shouldn't say there was, there was only one liturgy. There were, A couple others there's mozo arabic and there's ambrosian and there's you know there's a couple liturgies but there's one big liturgy that became very predominant after trent so trent is the council that dealt with the protestant problems that where they actually had an ecumenical council with all the bishops you know in the in the catholic world which obviously excluded you know eastern orthodox um they invited the protestants the protestants wouldn't show up so they just had the council without them um, you know, uh, and for the most part, I'm sure there were some Protestants there, but like, uh, you know, um, like England was in, in Geneva and they were not interested in, you know, the papists and their lies. So, um, but they actually like addressed all the problems that we rise in the Protestant revolt, um, like, you know, the Eucharist and like, uh, whether the church is visible or invisible and, uh. You know what? What is an individual Christian's relationship to Scripture, and like all the all these different questions, they uh, addressed all of that and gave. Sorry. Sidebar, real quick. Do you guys believe the church yeah. is visible or invisible? It's visible. It doesn't make sense any other way. Okay. Continue. Uh, yeah. I mean, when Jesus says go to the church, how do you go to an invisible church? Like, uh, there's this really easy test. Like Jesus says, if um if you have a problem with your brother, you know, like a problem with his behavior or you know with with heresy or whatever, you go to him and you confront him, confront him privately, right? I'm sure you like you remember this part. Like you confront him privately, and if uh if he um if he won't reform, then you go and you grab a couple witnesses and you confront him in private with those witnesses, right? Where two and or
2: three are gathered, he, it's
1: yeah, yeah, um, and if he if he continues to refuse to reform then you take him to the church and have the church judge him and if the church judges him and anathematizes him then you treat him treat him as a heathen and a tax collector right well how do you take him to the church if the church is invisible
0: wait but isn't what is visible versus invisible in this context So
1: i mean
2: protestants would say you guys have that verse real quick off the top of your head trying to think
1: I I can pull it up quickly. Um, uh, uh, Heathen and tax collector verse. So it looks like it's Matthew eighteen seventeen. Let me pull up the Dewey Rames version because just got to go all traditional Catholic here. Of course, Dewey Rames Matthew eighteen seventeen do um, Bible research yeah so read the full chapter okay 18 okay for the son of man has come to save that which is lost what think you if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them should go astray doth he not lead the 99 into the mountains and go to seek that which has gone astray and if it's, if it's so be it that he find it amen I say to you he will rejoice for more that, than for the 99 that went not astray Um, Even so, if it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish, but if thy brother shall offend against thee, go and rebuke him between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou shalt gain thy brother. And if he will not hear thee, take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may stand. And if he will not hear them, tell the church. And if he will not hear the church, let him be to thee as a heathen and a publican. Amen, I say to you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be also shall be bound also in heaven and whatsoever you shall loose upon earth shall be loosed also in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you shall consent upon earth concerning anything whatsoever, they shall ask it shall be done to them by my father who is in heaven. So uh, the, uh, one more distinctive belief that Catholics have compared to most Protestants today, uh, all that I'm aware is that, uh, we believe that, you know, uh, uh ordained ministers of the church can, uh, uh, cleanse your sins, you know, can remit your sins. Um, if you, you know, if you, if you confess your sins in, in the way our Lord stated in that the church states, uh, so that's a big one. And, and a lot of that comes from that, that line right there in a couple other places where he specifically says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's a big responsibility to give to humans, but that's what our Lord did. So anyways, um, well, you want to know the uh, funny part.
2: Was... So the, uh, just like the standard Protestant upbringing of this. So it's yeah. funny because you use this church, this verse as an example of like, well, oh, this is the reason why the church is visible. It makes no sense why you would tell it to the church after they refuse to listen. So what we do, and I'm not trying to argue and say like, this is correct. You're mm-hmm. wrong. Um, you Just go down to verse 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with
1: them. And so, yeah, that's we, true. Uh, so they take that? that no one can speak the name of Jesus without the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. So heretics have been speaking the name of Jesus since almost before he ascended into heaven, right? Like, well, What I'm saying, heretics, though, is you know, just that the whole
2: name. church uh, being like visible versus invisible, where I think most Protestants would argue it invisible. I guess where we differ in the scripture right there is we go, oh, we're two or three gathered in my name. I'm there with them. That's a representation of the church, therefore invisible. Well, what, what I mean
1: first of all, I mean, with, with that St. That Paul quote that no one can speak the name of Christ without, um, with, can say the name Jesus without, like, the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Um, like, uh, people blaspheme, you know, all the time using Christ's name. Um, according to St. Paul, they can only do that, you know, with with the Holy Ghost. Right, so obviously people can have Christ in their presence and smack him in the face. Right.
0: I mean, I think that's fair.
1: In fact, I mean that that's scripture. Like,
2: I think we're focusing on two different things here. You're ten, you're focusing on the the concept of I think I am there. Like when two or three gathered, then I am there and then people invoking his presence as though he is here and I can heal things like that. Is that what you're saying?
1: No, I'm just saying that he can be in people's presence and they can not be the church.
2: Okay, Perfect. Okay. I
1: get your point now. Yeah. Uh, if people can use Christ's name to blaspheme in a group, like if a group of atheists get together to trash talk Christ, like, you know, they, they, they can't, you know, they can't do that without, uh, the, you know, the Holy Ghost being there amongst them, you know, at, at allowing them to use those words and Christ allows them to, um, you know, but uh, in, in, you know, Christ is amongst those who are Christians, or, you know, th- though outside the church in some way, but that doesn't mean that they're in the church, right? Like, we go to the church for definitive judgments on matters of faith and morals. Like, if it, if the church can't do that, what good is it? I mean, I guess that would be my question. like. If you can't go to the church to resolve, you know, issues of faith and morals, like what did Christ leave us exactly?
2: Well, so then my question is, if you need to have a physical presence and structure for it to, to be considered as the church, I mean, what if all the churches are destroyed? All the physical buildings are you gone. Know, the
1: church, yeah, the church is not the buildings. Um, the church is the people. But there needs to be that that hierarchy of people ordained by God, right? Like so, um, there have always been, at least you know, since since Christ, there have always been, and there will always be to the end of the age, uh, ordained priests. There always will be, you know, consecrated lay people. Like there always will be, you know, the, the structures of the church. And I'm not talking about buildings. Um, you know, like in uh, in, in believers, you know, like there, there always will be those things, um, in Christ, gives them to us, like as a, you know, um, as a way of working out our salvation. In it's the hierarchical
2: them. structure with, yeah, no, I get
1: you. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so I, w- the, the, the historical debate is that Protestants, um, most Protestants, actually, I think probably all, but I, you know, I, I can't say for certain all, but the vast majority of Protestants argued for an invisible church where they said no one can know who is a true believer and who is not. Nobody can know who's in the church and who's not. Um, and, and they would disagree about whether you could know if you yourself was in the church, you know, if you yourself were in the church. Um, but uh, they would they would say that there's like this. <clears throat> there's this physical congregation of people which in one sense could be called the church, but it's not really the church because the church for a lot of Protestants was the elect, the saved, the ones predestined by God for heaven, right? Um, And in any group of Christians gathered for worship, like you can imagine that probably some of them are not in that group, right? Um, And so that was the problem. Yeah, the the problem is the Catholics immediately said, well, first of all, if you don't know who's in the church, why are you following this Luther guy? Or why are you following the Zwingli guy? Or this Calvin guy, what if they're not in the church? How do you know they're in the church, and that you know that's a continuing problem for protestants i I haven't heard a satisfactory answer um, well how but, do you know you're in the uh, Catholic Church? It's easy like are you um a baptized member of the Catholic Church that is has not been excommunicated um you know so uh we're we're pretty big on like documents and records and stuff like that, so uh if you know generally. Uh, the church has records on whether you've been baptized or not. And, uh, you know, you should have your own records. Um, but if you don't, there's always, you know, like I said, conditional baptism, if there's a real doubt about uh, whether or not you've been baptized. Um, and essentially, that's like, uh, it, the formula is is like, if this person was not baptized, I baptized the, you know, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, as I understand it. But uh, yeah, if you're a baptized member of the Catholic Church, you're in the church. Unless you've been put outside of the church by the ecclesiastical authorities, uh, now there's additional lay, distinctions in Catholicism for oh. a layman.
2: Though in the church means saved.
1: Right? No, no. Oh, okay. Lots of Catholics go to hell. Yep. So, uh, sin Um, I think it was. Oh, Bishop of Constantinople. Um. Oh gosh, this is a really. Big slow, but anyways, really uh, he said, dumb uh he said, question too.
2: really dumb question.
1: You guys believe in purgatory, yep. right? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So, and I'm going to have to hop up soon because it's dinner time. but, uh, uh, I'll, I'll just say this, that, um, uh, that, uh, Bishop said that, uh, the, he's got this very famous line where the, uh, the road to hell is paved with the skulls of bishops. Um, so, you know, we definitely don't believe that everyone goes, you know, everyone in the church goes to heaven, um, because it's not about membership in the church. In the church, there are dead members and living members. Dead members are those who are in the church, but, you know, for whatever reason, fail to, um, uh, you know, develop their relationship with Christ, um, and living members are those who in the church, you know, develop their relationship with Christ. And, uh, you know, yeah. So I'm going to have to uh, get off here, gentlemen, but you, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks can talk for coming more on.
2: I hope you enjoyed this because I really did. I'd love to have you back on because I really have tons of questions yeah. I'd love to ask you, but thank you for coming on.
1: Yeah. Thanks for Absolutely. joining us around the campfire. here, are you? All right. Thank you, John. And uh, yeah, I'll definitely be back on for the next one. Just send me the uh, the information. I'll I'll hop off now.
0: Absolutely. All right. I'll see you, buddy. And for everyone else, if you're listening, If you have any questions that you would like us to bring up or any topics you want uh, us to talk about, email us at askroundthecampfire at gmail.com, and we will be sure to get back to you. Uh, Ty, anything else? No. See everybody next week. Have a good one. All right. See you guys. Don't forget to put out that fire.